Good evening. Thank you for being here tonight. We appreciate so much your presence. Thank you to Jacob for leading singing tonight. I think this is the first time that Jacob has led on a Sunday, to my recollection. And what a great job he did. We're thankful for all the song leaders that we have. It was great to see Brother Billy lead singing this morning. And we are very thankful for his willingness to lead. And so we, we appreciate him and the fact that he was able to get back up here and lead. And so uh, thank you to Jacob and thank you to all who take part in our song leading. And uh, Danton and Jared and a host of other folks, we're very proud of you. Tonight we are looking at Acts chapter 5, and as we continue our study, Great Characters of Scripture, tonight we look at two very noteworthy individuals spoken of in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. Sadly, what the record has to say about them is not favorable. And so we want to look at this account. It might be the case that you have studied this account in days gone by. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've never heard a lesson on Ananias and Sapphira. And so what we want to do is look into the text and see what Luke has to say about this account and then make some application to our own lives. And so tonight as we begin our study, I do want to say thank you to those of you who are visiting. As always, thank you for coming our way. We appreciate so much your presence. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have you come and be a part of the work here. And So thank you again. Tonight, we want to go back and look at chapter 4, the passage that Jordan read a moment ago, because I think it helps to set the stage for what takes place in chapter 5. And so sometimes you have to look at the immediate context, and you've got to go back and maybe look at what is said background-wise in order to appreciate exactly what is unfolding. And so in Acts chapter 4, let me just very quickly go back and call attention to verse 32 and following. The early church has begun. Luke, of course, recorded the inauguration of the Lord's church, Pentecost Day, city of Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2 verifies that it was in accordance with God's eternal plan. The great prophets of old foretold of its coming. Jesus, John the Baptist, and others preached about the coming of the institution known as the Church of Christ. And so, in Acts chapter 2, we have the church as it begins. And then you have the unfolding of the infancy and growth of the early church. There were some lessons that I think emerge out of this infant church. So note with me, if you would, beginning in verse 32, what Luke has to say. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. With great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of houses, lands, sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And then, of course, we read about Jos, also named Barabbas, or rather Barnabas, by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement or consolation, a Levite of the country of Cyprus. Having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
So first and foremost, to understand that the early church was characterized by a benevolent spirit. Let me ask this question. Where did they learn something about benevolence? Now you can go back and look at the Old Testament and obviously God was concerned about the poor and those who were needy. But the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated compassion and mercy toward a lot of people, didn't He? You remember Luke said about the Christ that Jesus taught it's more blessed to give than to receive. It was also said of Jesus that He went about doing good. Jesus demonstrated a heart of compassion. He was very benevolent. And benevolence was at the heart of the early church. There are passages that stress the benevolent activities of God's people. Matter of fact, during the ministry of Jesus, you remember back in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus there picturing His second coming. And He said that when He comes again, He'll set those who are sheep on His right hand, the goats on the left, and those on the right hand, He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. He'll say, I was hungry, and what'd you do? You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was naked, you clothed me. Stranger, you took me in. Sick and in prison. And he said, you visited me. Well, where did they learn all of that? I think one of the ways they learned it, by watching Jesus, by observing how he dealt with people throughout his ministry. Now, having said that, let's go back and look very quickly at Acts chapter 2. In the second chapter of Acts, you remember some 3,000 people obeyed the gospel on Pentecost Day. And the Bible says in verse 42 that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now look at verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions in goods and divided them or distributed them among all as anyone had need. So benevolence was characteristic of the church from the very beginning, wasn't it? And so now we come to Acts chapter 4, and again you have brethren that are willing to give from their own proceeds to help those who might have been deemed needy in that day. We have an example of Barnabas. Barnabas was a good man. Matter of fact, Barnabas was said to have come from the Levitical tribe, which was the priestly tribe. And you think about the transition that took place between the Old and New Covenants. Under that Old Covenant, only those who were from the tribe of Levi could function as priests. But now, under the New Dispensation, that is, under the New Covenant, every child of God, every Christian, is said to be a royal priesthood. Matter of fact, we comprise a royal priesthood, don't we? We are a priestly tribe, and as priests of God, we offer unto Him sacrifices, one of which would be the distribution of our goods. Now, you need to understand something here. The saints that willingly gave proceeds from their own, well, those who gave proceeds from land and other things, they did so willingly. No compulsion here. They did it out of the goodness of their heart. We talk about God loving a generous giver. And so now, 
Note, if you would, the contrast in chapter 5. So we have Barnabas and others selling possessions. Again, look again at verse 34. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. All who were possessors of lands, houses, sold them, brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. So, number one, you have the distribution that took place in the early church. And let me just very quickly cite a couple of passages. You remember in Galatians chapter 6 at verse 2, Paul would say, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Then in verse 10 he would say, As we have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially those who are the household of faith. Are they demonstrating this? Yes, they are. But now note the contrast. You have deception. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. And brought a certain part, laid it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? In other words, Ananias and Sapphira, they could have done with the proceeds of that money as they saw fit. The problem was their deception. They wanted people to think that they gave all of the proceeds from that land. And so, note if you would what the record says. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Now we talk about the three members of the Godhead. God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Co-eternal, co-equal. And so, the Holy Spirit here is referred to as a member of the Godhead. And Peter charges Ananias with lying to the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. Great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Now let me just drop down, drop down with me if you would. And note in verse 7, three hours later we find Sapphira comes on the scene had no knowledge of what has occurred. And Peter says to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. And then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? So what was the problem here? Why does God deal so severely with Ananias and Sapphira. The record tells us that they were both put to death, and we'll talk about that in just a moment or two. But what was the problem? The problem was covetousness, or, well, greed. Has that been a problem since time began? And where then does covetousness, what's the taproot of covetousness? Is it not lust? Go back to Genesis chapter 3. You remember when 
the serpent appealed to Mother Eve? And do you recall the text tells us when she saw, she saw something, and guess what? She wanted it, and she took it. Let me give you an example or two of what I'm talking about, and I want to look at a couple of other passages with you in the New Testament. Go back, if you would, to the book of Joshua, chapter 6. I want you to see something in connection with what we're talking about. Greed or covetousness, the catalyst behind that, the bottom line is lust. You remember, for example, in James chapter 1, James said, Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust. Lust, when it has conceived, brings forth sin. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And so there you have the process, don't you? All right, so look at Joshua chapter 6. You remember specific instructions were given for the taking of Jericho. God had said to Joshua in the long ago, listen to what the text says, verse 2. See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. Then he gives instructions as to how they are to take the city. But then, note if you would, a problem that occurs over in chapter 7. There's a fellow by the name of Achan that takes some of the spoil, or as we would say, some of the devoted things for himself. And what prompted that? Look, if you would, at Joshua chapter 7. In Joshua chapter 7, note, for example, drop down and note for a moment or two in verse 19. Joshua says to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I've done. Now look at verse 21. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, now note, I coveted them and took them. And there they are hidden in the earth in its midst of my tent with the silver under it. What happened to Achan and those in his family? Do you remember? Note, if you would, what the text says. Joshua sends messengers. They run to the tent. And the text says there it was hidden in the tent with the silver under it. They brought, or rather they took them from the midst of the tent brought them to Joshua, to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, donkeys, sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Was that severe punishment? Yes, it was. And what was the problem? Covetousness. Now turn over, if you would, to 2 Kings chapter 5. 
2 Kings chapter 5, we have the account of the healing of Naaman. Elisha, the prophet of God, is the one who gives very specific instructions to Naaman so that he might be cleansed of his leprosy. When he complies, the Bible tells us that he was cleansed. But I want you to see something down in verse 15. The text says that he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. That's a key point. Now drop down and note if you would, a servant of Elisha the prophet. Down in verse 20, we read about a fellow by the name of Gehazi. And the text tells us, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman, this Syrian, while not receiving from his hands what he brought. What he had, what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Indeed, just now two young men of the son of the prophets have come to me from the mountain of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Naaman said, Please take two talents. And he urged him, and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. Was that truth? Was that a true statement, or was it a lie? It was a lie, wasn't it? Now note what the text says. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand, or rather, Look at verse 23 again. Please take two talents, and he urged him, bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments, handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand, stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed. And he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. You see how he's compounding the problem here? Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. Severe punishment. Now that in mind, turn to the book of 1 Timothy. Let's look at 1 Timothy in chapter 6. And while you're turning to 1 Timothy chapter 6, let me just make a statement or two here. The devil exploits the weaknesses of men, doesn't he? How does the devil operate? What does he use to tempt those of us who belong to the human family? He uses the same means He used in the garden. The same means that He used with Jesus as recorded by Matthew and Luke, for example, in chapters 4 of their books. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, 
and the pride of life. Is the devil interested in our welfare? The answer is no. The devil could care less about us. But he wants to use us. He wants to exploit our weaknesses. And if we give him a foothold, he's going to take over, isn't he? You remember that fellow by the name of Judas Iscariot? Judas sold out the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to think about this. He spent three, three and a half years with Jesus, didn't he? Saw Jesus perform many, many miracles, the pinnacle of which, in my estimation, would be the raising of Lazarus from the dead. That would be one example. He saw all these great miracles. He heard Jesus preach time and again. We noted this morning in Matthew chapter 7 at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount that those who were present were astonished at His doctrine. Why? Because He taught them as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. And you remember in John chapter 7, verse 46, it was said of Jesus, No man ever spoke like this man. So here is Judas Iscariot. He has a front row seat, as we might say, to the teaching, preaching, and work of Jesus, the Son of God. For example, you go, you go back to Acts chapter 4 again. When the Sanhedrin council interrogated Peter and John, the Bible says they took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. Well, if you read the gospel narrative or narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the problem with Judas was he allowed Satan to get a foothold in his life. He was pilfering from the treasury box. So when he sold out the Lord Jesus Christ, what was the problem? Let me tell you what it was. Greed, covetousness, 30 pieces of silver. He sold Jesus out. Now having said that, let's look now at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And listen to what the Apostle Paul says. And again, the influence of the devil and the work of the devil. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 44, that the devil is a liar. He's the father of lies, isn't he? And Peter would say that he walks about as a roaring lion. He's our adversary, seeking whom he might devour. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, here's what Paul said beginning in verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. All he's saying is we came into this world with nothing and we will leave with nothing. That's what Job said in the long ago. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. Is contentment a difficult trait to acquire in life? Yes, it is. And was it not the Apostle Paul that said in the long ago, I have learned in whatsoever state I'm in, therein to be content? And Paul is saying that godliness with contentment is great gain. But look now at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Can material goods obstruct our spiritual vision? Well, the answer would be yes. Go back and read Luke chapter 12. When Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness. Why? 
A man's life consists not in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now we know that scripture, but that's not how the world operates, is it? The world says, I'm somebody because of what I possess, or because of my position, or because of my fame, and so on. Well, Paul said, riches have the ability to distort our spiritual vision. Now note, if you would, beginning in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Do you think the love of money, covetousness, was that not at the root of the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? Now granted, they wanted the recognition among the brethren that they were generous as was Barnabas in the long ago. And so rather than saying, you know what, we're going to set apart, we're going to set aside a portion of the proceeds from the land that we sell, and we're going to give that to the Lord. No, they wanted, they wanted people to think they gave everything, that they were people of great generosity. So Paul said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith. Listen to him, in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Now drop down, look at verse 17. Here's what Paul is saying to those of us in this world who have material goods. Charge them, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now look at verse 18. Let them do good. That they, may, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Was that not what occurred in Acts chapter 4 with the disciples in the first century distributing the proceeds of the things that they sold for the benefit of those who had need? Yes, that was. And so he says in verse 19 that those who do so store it for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may, hold, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now go back again very quickly. Time's almost gone. Looked up. Time gets away quickly. Look again at Acts chapter 5. In verse 5, the text said, Ananias, hearing these words, that is the words of Peter, when he said, you've not lied to men but to God, the text says that he, found that he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all those who heard these words. Now drop down again. We read about the death of his wife, Sapphira. Peter said, How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet, breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Now note verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. Two times in the text, the Bible speaks of the fear that was generated in the hearts and lives of those who saw what the Lord did to Ananias and Sapphira. Great fear, or we might use the word dread, came upon those people. 
I want to ask you a question. When we talk about capital punishment, does the Bible sanction capital punishment in the kingdoms of men? Romans chapter 13 says, absolutely. And the reason that God instructed people in the long ago to not bear the sword in vain was because when capital punishment is executed, it sends a message to those who are engaged in wrongdoing. And the bottom line is it becomes a deterrent to evildoers. Let me just say right now, one of the reasons why crime is at an all-time high in our country is because we have refused to listen to what God said in His Word. And that's a real problem. And these folks that are wanting to defund the police and everything else, I can tell you right now, things will not get better, they will only get worse. Now, spiritually... Whenever we read in Scripture of God putting somebody to death, we need to take notice. Do you think God was sending a message to the first century church? Let me tell you what. Here's what the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Withdraw yourselves from every brother that walks disorderly. Do you know what that means? When people are engaged in disorderly conduct, when they are out of rank, out of step with God's people, Paul said you would draw from them. Why? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he said a little leaven leavens a whole lump. Listen, God put these folks to death for a reason. When the text says great fear came upon the church, do you think he had their attention? Yes, he did. When a congregation of God's people has members who are walking disorderly out of step with the teaching of Almighty God. And they are influencing others in the church, negatively speaking. When the congregation or church takes punitive action and withdraws fellowship, does that not send a message to the church that evil will not be tolerated? Read the seven churches of Asia. And there was a congregation that had become lax with a lady in the church that was influencing God's people for evil. And so in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira were put to death. Now God doesn't operate that way today. That was the age of the miraculous. But let me tell you what. That account is recorded for our learning, our benefit. And the taproot of all of this goes back to greed and covetousness. The first major problem in the Lord's church addressed by God was right here. A greedy heart, a covetous heart. You know, we talk about the danger of false teaching, and that is a threat. I, I would freely grant that. But sometimes what we fail to understand is that the devil doesn't necessarily have to prey upon us from without. He can do it within. And so when people's hearts 
get corrupted with greed and covetousness. It's a real problem. Let me give you one other passage of Scripture, and I've got to, I've got to close. But look over in Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to see something else in connection with what we're talking about. Look at Ephesians, the fifth chapter. And bear in mind that Paul here is writing to saints who have come out of the world. And so he says in verse 1, Therefore be followers of God as dear children, walk in love as Christ also has loved us, given Himself as an offering, a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma, fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness. Let it not be named among you as is fitting for saints." Neither filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Now look at verse 5. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Did you see the connection here? Paul said that greed and covetousness is equated to idolatry. And it was John who wrote in 1 John chapter 5, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We can erect a God from within. A covetous heart, and that can lead to our destruction. So you look at Ananias and Sapphira, and they leave behind a legacy, not really a good legacy, but a lot to think about, a lot to chew on. I'd encourage you over the next few days to go back and read and reread and study this account more. A lot of information here. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I encourage you to come to Christ believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's who He claimed to be. I would encourage you to repent of all your sins, as Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 5. I'd encourage you to confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, as Paul talked about in Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. And then to be immersed in water so that all your sins can be forgiven or washed away. Acts 22, 16. When you do that, God will put you in the church. You'll be a part of the ecclesia, the community of the saved. And then be faithful. And if you're faithful in Christ Jesus, the promise is the crown of life, the Stephanos. If you're here tonight, maybe your life's not what it ought to be. Maybe you have fallen out of step with the Lord. You're not where you ought to be and you want to be back in fellowship with God, the beauty of it is God will take you back. He'll forgive your sins, and you can leave here tonight knowing all is well with your soul, as we sang about just a moment ago. Won't you come as we stand and sing?